Hi, I'm Lex Marinos, and... Hello, I'm Patricia Ramflett. You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century, across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week we chat with leading health, lifestyle, finance and fitness experts about how to get the most out of life as we age. Plus we talk with well-known and not-so-well-known Australians of all generations about the issues that affect them. So tune in and... Get connected. connected. Stay connected. Oh, Lex, it's episode two. How are you? Yes. How are you going? (laughs) Very well, Patricia. Yourself, you're looking radiant, I must say. (laughs) Thank you. Do you know, understanding the aged care system can be tricky, but today that's our theme and we have Paul Sadler from the Aged and Community Services of Australia and that'll fill us in on a few things that we, we all concern ourselves with. But Jeff's Cafe, to talk about it, will be a young person, a middle-aged person, and an older person, and they are... Zara, mm. Elise, and Cheryl Kernow, a friend of the program. Wonderful. Can't wait for that. And, you know, you know, Jeff's Cafe, you, you have to book now. It's booked out. Oh, it's, it's so popular. Out. It's booked out like three years in advance, mm. Jeff's Cafe. I know. That's how popular yep. it is. And do you know how they've had passport queues over the last few months the queues mm-hmm. outside Jeff's cafes are even longer. And that's just for the coffee. <laughs> but you can also, let me tell you this, mm-hmm. let me tip you this, you can also get a passport at Jeff's Cafe. <laughs> we wish. <laughs> uh, nostalgia Town. Who's on today, Lex? Val Dempsey, Senior Australian of the Year. Ah, <gasps> oh, she's wonderful. Now, always interested in mm. money, never enough never too much, and retirement is not just about the money with Mark Bynum, who will tell us all about retiring with a little bit of money in the pocket, some in the bank, and how to be sensible about it. That should be good. And a little bit hidden under the mattress at (laughs) Jeff's Cafe. (laughs) That's right. Uh, Stepping out, you know, I still think the South Coast is a bit of a secret, don't you? Oh, the beautiful south coast of New South Wales, Shoalhaven area, yes. Jenny Armstrong's going to tell us all about it. She will too, and she's great, Jenny. So another fun-packed big program. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. Got it out. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I think about it, it happens every day. This is the first of our series of themes on finance and aged care, and we're speaking with Paul Sadler. Paul's the Chief Executive Officer of Aged and Community Services Australia, the peak body representing not-for-profit aged and community care service providers. He also runs a consultancy business, Paul Sadler Consultancy. Paul is the CEO of Presbyterian Aged Care New South Wales and ACT from April 2007 to March 2021. Before that, Paul was CEO of Aged and Community Services New South Wales and ACT have various positions on ageing and disability issues in the New South Wales government, including manager of home and community care and ageing programs, worked as a social worker with frail, older people, people with disabilities and their carers. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. That's a pleasure, Lex. Paul, how did you, how did you get into this field? Well, uh, I did social work when I went through university and happened to be the first job I got offered out of university was as a carer support worker funded in the very first round of the Home and Community Care Program back in 1986. Uh, and I've stayed working in ageing uh, issues ever since. 
Does that mean you've seen things get better or progressively worse? Uh, look, I think in many, many respects they've got better. So, uh, you know, when I was first starting out work as a social worker and I'd go into some very old, inappropriate buildings that had nursing homes in them uh, and the the building standard of aged care has substantially improved in those 35 years since I first started in the sector. Uh, we've also seen the creation of many more alternatives for people to receive services in their own home over that time. So the, the, the situation is definitely better than it was, but it's also facing some major challenges right now. Yes, indeed. Paul, just uh, before we drill down a bit, tell us a little bit about your organisation. So, yeah, Aging Community Services Australia does, as you said, Lex, represent the churches, charities and not-for-profit aged care operators across the country. So we provide help to those organisations with their management of aged care services, with the uh, advocacy to government, uh, representation in the media. So uh, in the last... Uh, months since I joined the organisation in September to, uh, 2021, we've obviously been doing a lot of work in talking to uh, the media and the government about what's been going on through COVID-19 pandemic and also in the lead up to the federal election. Uh, Paul, I, I guess I'm not dissimilar to a lot of people my age with aged parents and the process of getting my mum into aged care I found fairly difficult to negotiate. For a start, I, I didn't quite understand uh, how aged care was funded in Australia. There seemed to be all sorts of different levels and qualifications and all of that. And it was quite a labyrinth to find my way through, I found. Uh, yes, Lex, and I, I had to place my mother into residential aged care a couple of years ago, and even though I've worked in the sector for all those years, found it much the same. It, it, it is a labyrinth. Uh, what the government has created is uh, what's known as My Aged Care, and so that's a, a central point through which people access the aged care system. And uh, as part of that process, you can be assessed uh, if you need low-level care by what's known as a regional assessment service, or if you have more complex care needs, either at home or needing access to residential aged care, then it'll be a... Uh, professional aged care assessment team that will assess uh, your needs. And then at that point, you're assessed as either needing a low level of care, a medium level of care, maybe at home, or you need to go into a residential aged care. And from there, um, the intention is that My Aged Care helps provide you with some information about what your choices are at that point, and you, you can exercise choices to which service you go to to receive your care. And, and those choices also seem to be determined by whether you're a self-funded retiree or what your assets may be. And it seems to be, once again, I found it difficult to negotiate. Yeah, if you need the uh, any form of higher level care, so um, a home care package or entry into residential aged care, then you may well need to undergo a um, income and assets test through uh, Centrelink. 
Uh, and yes, that, that process can itself add uh, an, a layer of complexity for you to access the system. But that is a, a, a once in time assessment. Once that assessment's been done, then uh, whatever your assessors needing to pay will continue to be until you reach a cap, um, which is uh, available for uh, fees that you might be charged. Uh, particularly for residential aged care, uh, but usually that, that you'd only reach that cap after a few years in care. So uh, essentially, yes, it's a hurdle to get through, but you basically only do it the once. Paul, with your experience within the sector, how how effective do you feel are the current funding arrangements? So... Just to uh, expand on the funding arrangements a little bit more. So if you need low-level care, you provided that support through what's known as the Commonwealth Home Support Program. And, and many listeners would be very familiar with the services that, that are funded through the Commonwealth Home Support. So it's services like Meals on Wheels, um, home modifications, community transport, uh, home nursing, personal care or domestic sis- assistance in the home, but also daycare programs that might be provided at a local community centre. So many people are familiar with those. You might, uh, they're, they're basically funded by the Commonwealth Government, but they might, you might be asked to make a small co-contribution towards the costs of the services. If you need a home care package, then around about 90% of the funding of that package will come from the Commonwealth Government. And around about 10% will come from uh, a user charge that the provider will potentially ask you to pay. And that uh, fee is controlled by uh, regulations from the federal government. And if you need to go into residential aged care, there's uh, two main fees that you pay. And then the Commonwealth Government provides a subsidy that covers the balance of care costs. The first fee that you'd be asked to pay is what's known as a basic daily fee. So that that would come, it's almost like a rental payment that goes to the aged care provider and covers um, basically your hotel costs, your food, your cleaning and so on. Um, then uh, for those who are assessed as eligible to pay it, there might be uh, an additional fee that, uh, and that's where that assessment by Centrelink will t- say whether you need to pay an additional fee on top of that. And that would essentially be a fee that reduces the care subsidy that the federal government pays. The third payment that you can be asked to make for residential aged care is a payment towards your accommodation costs. Uh, and that you have a choice about whether you pay a lump sum known as a refundable accommodation deposit or you pay a daily accommodation payment, which is effectively a rent. You can also pay a mix of both. And uh, we would always recommend you get some financial advice about what's the best way to pay in those circumstances. Uh, this is where some people get very confused because sometimes the, the figures you can be asked to pay for the accommodation can run into, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not sometimes the low million dollars worth. And that's all about what the cost of your property is. 
It's like you, you know, buying a house in Mossman in Sydney compared to buying it in Mount Druitt. Yeah, if you pay for a service that's in a particular location, a particular quality of built environment, then you will be asked to pay more. What the government does do, though, is guarantee that if you cannot afford to pay an accommodation payment, they have a scheme whereby they will pay a fee to from government funds to the aged care provider. And that means that people, irrespective of whether they own a home or not, they can go into a residential aged care service. Okay. And for families for whom English is not first language, is that uh, the, can they get assistance to negotiate their way through these arrangements? One of the things the government has been trialling is a system of what they've called care navigators, uh, and uh, one of the features of the government's response to the Aged Care Royal Commission is they're about to turn this into uh, a system that will be available right across the country. At the moment, there's been some pilot programs which have targeted culturally and linguistically diverse communities to provide them with help. So the Federation of Ethnic Communities Councils of Australia, FECA, have been providing some pilot programs in locations with high levels of uh, called communities uh, now, but it is intended to expand that program from 2023 onwards. So, yes, there is help for you. Um, also, if you contact My Age Care, you can get assistance through the translation and interpreters service TIS um, to actually speak to the My Age Care operators for guidance. And, and Paul, you mentioned cultural diversity. Is um, is culture and religious practices are they catered for? Yeah, we have many organisations that uh, are based in ethnic communities, uh, set up often by local church groups or local community groups that run and specialise in the care of people from their community. So you have Polish, you have uh, Dutch, you have Vietnamese, uh, Chinese services that are particularly focused on their own communities. But even if you go to a mainstream aged care provider running run by one of the big churches or community uh, regionally based community organisations or for-profit operators, they will all have some form of program that includes people from different cultures uh, and often they have visiting priests or um, co community members who will run religious services, uh, events that are culturally appropriate to the residents of that service. Okay. Uh, I guess like um, most people, I was shocked at the some of the findings that came out of the Royal Commission into Aged Care, Quality and Safety, and, um, and uh, it really felt to me as though even though we speak about having an ageing population, that we hadn't really taken into account the reality of what that means? Lex, I think that's right. And um, not only were you shocked, I, I think those of us who work in the aged care sector were disappointed and shocked by what was found by the Royal Commission. 
Um, I, I've been personally looking at the issue of abuse of older people for a long, long time. One of the things I did when I was at university was a, a thesis on the issue of elder abuse in Australia and was one of the first published authors on that issue. And unfortunately, it hasn't gone away, both in the context of what happens in families. We had a recent prevalence study on elder abuse which showed that around 14% of all older people uh, are victims of abuse or neglect, um, and that's largely in the family home. And the Royal Commission also identified that there are you know, around about 30% of people in the aged care system have received substandard care at least once during their time in the care system. And some of the particular stories in the Royal Commission showed the impact of neglectful actions by both aged care providers, but also the broader health system in, in its engagement with older people. Mm. So mm. we absolutely know we need to do better in Australia. The Royal Commission also said that this was an underfunded and under-supported sector. They identified that over the last decade and a half, uh, successive federal governments, uh, Labor and Coalition, have reduced the funding available to the aged care sector by somewhere around $10 billion per annum compared with what it should be in order to provide the, the care that we want to in the system. So we've seen really successive governments Governments treat aged care as something to be provided to the lowest level possible, um, and that has resulted in the struggles that our workforce uh, and our managers have in trying to make sure we're providing quality care to people on the ground. And yet, as I say, we're constantly made aware that we are an ageing population, but that rhetoric doesn't seem to match up with the, with the re- reality of funding. One of the things that has been really good with the federal election this year is it's actually finally become a key issue in an election. It's the first time I can remember that aged care was you know, prominent in one of the two major leaders' opening speeches, really, of the campaign with Anthony Albanese focusing on aged care in his budget reply speech. So I think the impact gradually of an ageing population is having an impact on the issues that political parties are identifying as vote changers. And with the report of the Royal Commission, plus the tragic impact of the pandemic on aged care, we really are seeing a strong focus on a need to fix the workforce challenges in the sector and to set aged care up to provide care for more people in a better way in the future. This is an opportunity for those of us who work in the aged care sector and for older people and consumer organisations that represent older people and their carers to really make hammer home the points in this election campaign that we need to get aged care right because it's in everybody's interest. We're all going to touch the aged care system one way or another, whether, as you said, Lex, it's you and your parents or me and my mum, whether it's the, you know, the people who work in aged care. There's 1.3 million older Australians that are receiving formal aged care services. That's a lot of people. And when you extrapolate the family members, the people who work in the sector, which is another 350,000 people, and all of those numbers with an ageing population are going to be growing. We'll need more workers uh, and there's going to be more older people who need care. So, so Paul, uh, assuming you're the uh, 
the Minister for um, Aged Care. What do you need to do next? Well, the first thing any new minister after the election is going to need to do is address the uh, acute workforce crisis. So we had a situation in January uh, of 2022 in Australia where with the Omicron wave, we lost anywhere between 25% and sometimes 50% of our workers to uh, the COVID pandemic, either directly through having it or being close contacts of someone who did. And while it's not quite at that level again, this latest Omicron BA2 variant is also causing an increase in the number of outbreaks in aged care homes and impacting home care services. Uh, we've seen international borders closed because of the pandemic. So we now are at a situation where we've really got an acute shortage of workers uh, and we, we really need aged care minister, whoever it is, after the election to prioritise improving the wages of aged care staff. Uh, and making sure that we have the diversity of workers in aged care through allied health, through registered nurse provision, through uh, the personal care workforce that meets the needs of older people effectively. Paul, have we got the have we got the combination of of uh, government subsidised and private operators? Have we got that formula right? Uh, look, I think there's always room for change and improvement. And one of the interesting things was that the trajectory of uh, provision of aged care has been t- towards a growing proportion of for-profit operators in the sector over the last decade. But in actual fact, just in the last six months, that, that has gone into reverse. So we've had two of the biggest private operators that have sold to not-for-profit organisations. And we've also seen many individual aged care homes and home care operators that have been run by private operators that are also being sold to not back to not-for-profit organisations. So this is a pretty dynamic environment we're in at the moment. Um, Most of the state governments have got out of large-scale provision of aged care. The Victorian government and Queensland government still uh, have the the most government-run aged care homes, Uh, but most of the other states have very few government-run homes left. So uh, I don't think we're going to see governments pick up the cudgel as the providers of aged care in any large numbers going forward. It will be the for-profit organisations and the not-for-profits that will continue to provide the majority of care. Is it uh, also impacted on by that uh, that grey area that gets between federal responsibility and state responsibility? It seems like it slips through that crack a bit too often. Yeah, it can do. Uh, aged care is now totally a federal responsibility. So um, the uh, former Home and Community Care Program that I touched on previously and used to run for the New South Wales government at one time, uh, that has moved over in the decade of the 2010s to be completely controlled now by uh, the federal government. So the federal government is the, has the full responsibility for aged care. But, of course, as soon as you begin talking about general practice, about uh, the hospital system or the subacute care system, you begin to touch responsibilities of state governments. Uh, the other big area that state governments are responsible for is retirement villages. 
So that's obviously a, a big area of growth uh, with an ageing population, and that is totally a state government responsibility. So we, we do actively engage as, as Ageing Community Services Australia with state, territory and federal governments. The other big thing we learned during the pandemic was even though aged care is a federal responsibility, when it comes to the provision of workforce initiatives or public health orders and the like, there's still state government responsibilities. So the, the states and the federal government absolutely need to work in together to make sure that the provision of services to older people is coordinated and works effectively, particularly through things like a pandemic. Yeah, indeed. Paul, thank you so much for talking to us and explaining that. I feel I feel more secure uh, about uh, how my uh, my aunt is now being treated, and um, and I look forward to chatting to you again, maybe after the election, and just see what uh, where where all that settles and where it lands. But thank, thank you for today. Uh, thank you too, and I'd be delighted to come back. This is an important topic and and one uh, that I'm sure we'll want to pick up again after the election. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Paul. That's Paul Sadler there, CEO of Age and Community Services Australia. And now it's time to have a cuppa in Jeff's Cafe, where people of different ages talk about the theme and interview of the day. And now, once again, it's time to have a cuppa in Jeff's Cafe. We're going to talk about that interview we've just heard with Paul Sadler on aged care funding. Joining us today, we have Elise from Cogra, who's aged somewhere between 40 and 61. We have, uh, we have Zara from the ACT, who's aged somewhere between 18 and 39. And Cheryl Kerno, former leader of the Democrats, aged somewhere between 62 and 100,000. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose, you know, it's a, it's a, it seems to be a diabolical problem. Cheryl Kernow, is aged care funding just too bloody complicated? Oh, absolutely. He lost me when he got to about the fifth layer. I thought nobody should have to navigate something as complex as that. You shouldn't have to have advisors to tell you how to sort out your aged care finances with your parents. There's something, as I said, there should be a law against making something as complex as that. <laughs> what is it meant to be a disincentive so that somebody profits? I mean, you just don't feel, I felt that uh, it would be very hard for most people to be on top of that detail without personal uh, explanations. And and really, with something as important as what you're doing for you, with your parents or alongside your parents, um, I just think that's not right. I mean, my mother never wanted to go into a nursing home and I wondered whether that was the same for Elise and Zara. But um, if we had to negotiate that, and she was 98 and there was a home involved and I just thought, I'm so glad we did not have to go down that path because we wouldn't know where to start, apart from finding some, something that had a vacancy. What do you think? Yeah, that's right. Um, it's just, it's an absolute rabbit hole, isn't it? You wonder like how far down it actually goes. And I remember my grandma, um, when she was alive, she always said she'd never, ever go into a nursing home and that they'd have to carry it out in a box. Yes. 
And what happened to her? Did she stay at home? Um, she ended up moving interstate uh, to Yapoon with relatives and then eventually, because she was in her 90s, they had to put her into care. Mm. Um, but she stayed in Sydney in her home for as long as possible. But, yeah, like, and I, I was a lot younger then, but now with my parents ageing, yeah, um, they're in there. My dad's in his early 70s, my mum late 60s. It's really made me think like, oh, my gosh, this is just unbelievable. You know, what's going on? I just, I'm speechless when I was listening to the interview. It's like, Mm. wow, how are people supposed to navigate this? And then when you put that level of complexity on top of what we're all hearing about conditions, current conditions, in aged care, in nursing homes, in staff ratios and all the rest of it. I think it makes all of us anxious, not not just the poor people who have to end up going there with all of their fears and anxieties. The thought of, of my grandma or my mother going into aged care makes me nervous and um, I know neither of them want to be in that situation. Um, so I'd really like to do what I can to have them have access to support services in their home as much as possible, mm. although I know that there are expenses involved in that. Um, but on the, but you started talking about the standard of, of care and mm. um, oh, what, hearing what Paul Sadler was mentioning was shocking. Like he's, I think he said that 30% of people in the aged care system have received substandard care. And mm. these, are, these are vulnerable people um, who have potentially limited access. They might not have family that can support them. Um, and and I actually find that quite scary. And I don't know if that's a funding issue, an issue around maybe lack of funding or not enough staff. I don't know. Um, I don't know what you think on that. I think it's about the number of staff that they, they've been allowed since 1997 to actually change staff ratios and not necessarily have uh, enrolled nurses on. They've moved to um, personal care assistants. Mm. And these are people who, and they can bathe you um, and toilet you, but they're not, they're not qualified to do anything more than that. And so it's just been about dumbing down the system to save money. And so even though Paul was explaining how you've got payments for this and then a level for that and then there's the accommodation costs, even having that elaborate system over the top has not stopped people, owners of private nursing homes, from serving really crap food, really lack of nutritious food. And I think that's unforgivable. Yes, yeah. I had a look um, briefly at some of the a part of the Royal Commission report, and they mentioned that in residential aged care, 47% of people have concerns about understaffing and high rates of staff turnover. Um, which, like 40, 47% is, is, is huge. <laughs> um, and I think you're right on that. Like, it, you know, if we're, if we're moving through staff or the pay is not high enough for nurses, and we see that with COVID, don't we? Like, it, yes. it, anyway, it just impacts on the level of care. Yeah, I actually Googled the, um, the aged care pay worker scale and um, it starts off at about $21 to $22, like yeah. entry level. Wow. So they wonder why they can't retain people. Like how is yeah. somebody possibly supposed to live off that? Like I thought um, mm. peer work in mental health pay was low, but 
This is just um, absolutely appalling. And it's the same in childcare. As a society, whoever's setting the rules, we've got our values and the way they mesh with remuneration. We've got a lot of that very wrong. We put kids into care in the place of parents. Yeah. We put our parents into care in the place of us mm. and we expect people to work for a pittance in what is a very demanding and responsible job yeah absolutely right, that's exactly right like they do have it backwards don't they like these um people are doing the most uh, hardest and you know most important jobs of our society yet they're paid and rewarded the least mm -hmm. it just doesn't make sense mm -hmm. does it no and they're doing jobs that the rest of us wouldn't want to do and that, for me, that should be getting a bonus. Absolutely. And and I think you do see, and this is, I'm coming in with a slight gender argument, but you do see that those caring industries have more women working in those roles yeah. as well. And I, I, so I think that there, there are a number of layers going on there. Do you know, historically, awards didn't really count the care aspect they just expected women to do it. And I think mm. I think we've got this huge lag where we are not um, recognising that that caring element should be remunerated. It's not something that everybody mm. can do and it's not something, yeah. And, and our award system doesn't recognise that in the slightest. No, no. Right, like it's absolutely no physically draining, um, sometimes back-breaking work and emotionally and psychologically draining as well. Uh, so people really need to be remunerated adequately, don't they, if they're going to stay in such a high-demand and high-stressful job? Um you would think it, you know, that it would be that simple to pay them what they're worth. Yeah, yeah. When I was um, living in London at one stage, um, I took part in some research that the Demos Foundation was doing on, they called it silver service, and it was really about retirement and, and aged care, and came across an example from the Netherlands where in one re big region they bulldozed all the aged care homes and they set up um, so a kind of triage of accommodation options. And you, if you were ill, you could go into the hospital and you could stay in the hospital and be cared for and then be released into the next layer of care down and eventually get back into your home with all sorts of personal supports. But, you know, imagine us doing that here. It's such a huge business to start with, but imagine us saying let's think about this a different way let's say the starting point should be that people should stay at at the level of care that they require mm. and then and let the family have a big say in how that happens yes yeah and it sounds as though um, that's also linked in with investment around allied health services as well, I think, which kind of helps to reduce the strain mm. on the industry if you have that more holistic uh, approach but we we continue we continue to play around with very complex layers of how things should be financed and lose sight of maybe we could do it all differently to start with 
As a slight um, tangent, and I'm sorry to do this, but have either of you watched the documentary Old Person's Home for Four-Year-Olds? Absolutely. Oh, yes. Isn't it fantastic? Love it. Incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And there's a blueprint there, isn't there? There's a blueprint for change there. Yeah, well, I do think that that intergenerational connection is really important, and you see that in terms of the improvement in health outcomes for people who would ordinarily be in aged care or residential care um, in terms of their mobility and their mental health outcomes. So I think, I mean, there's so many layers to work through, not just funding, but also what the model itself even looks like. And they've at the end of both, they've had it twice now, haven't they, two seasons. Yeah. And at the end of each season, they've said, we would really like to be able to replicate this across the nation. Mm. So why? I would love the current aged care minister to say that is a fantastic idea that we're prepared to look into. And you can see on their faces just the mental well-being, like how improved it is having that contact, Mm. you know, with children and and that laughter and having that playfulness and that social connection and also that connection with such a, a younger generation they normally probably wouldn't you know often get to see their grandkids or yeah. you know that really young age group as much you can just see their faces light up hey and like, so that stops them going to hospital that saves money because they don't end up using other services but i thought the intergenerational aspect of it that was really interesting was some that had no visitors or no grandparents the parents of the little kids adopted them yes. and invited them into their homes. Yes, wasn't that lovely? Beautiful. I know. It was heartwarming actually, wasn't it? It was. But it is interesting. I suppose in amongst all of the potential layers of problems, it was interesting when um, Paul Sadler discussed that the government's been tri- trialling um, like culturally and linguistically diverse care navigators. And I think that's something which is important in terms of particularly given what you're saying that it's quite a difficult system to navigate having having culturally appropriate communication I don't know exactly what that the care navigators do but having culturally and linguistically diverse communication to target those communities and ensure that information is accessible is is really important I think well, I think that's what they do they make the information accessible there are some ethnicities that have their own um, nursing home, um, but they're, they're more like there might be for um, Jewish elderly people or uh, I saw some um, Arabic ones in the UK and I, I, I thought they would work for the cultural, linguistic, not they don't work for diversity but they work for the staff because the staff in the one place know best how to deal with people from background. And so it makes you wonder too about should we be spending more time thinking about that in Australia as well? Yeah. It's amazing that they're fact, starting to factor that in, isn't it? Um, seeing that we're such a diverse country um, and, you know, ethnic groups traditionally take care and look after their older people, don't they, and have them in the home. So it's really good to see that Australia is adopting uh, you know, that kind of um, model of care. Do you think we are? I think slowly. I think slowly it's it's creeping, creeping mm. in. Um, but, yeah, there's still a long way to go, isn't there? 
Yes, indeed, there is a long way. I'm wondering if Zara's thinking that nursing that nursing homes will be a thing of the past when when she gets there. Things die out because they don't fit um, the purpose of the time, and I just wondered whether we are going to have a revolution over the new generations in whether nursing homes should exist. Mm, it's an interesting one. I think, and I, I don't know the answer to it, but I do think the fact that we have an ageing population but decreasing number of people working in the sector is going to put some pressure on the need to change the system. And I don't know what it would look like. I don't know whether it's drawing upon that intergenerational framework or whether it's more localised levels of care within home and communities um, or whether it's moving away from more of the privatised model back to um, an increasing government subsidised, oh, sorry, a government run care. I don't, I don't know what the solution is, but I do think the combination of an ageing population and, and stress on, on staffing is going to have to shake the system up a little bit. And a good thing too. Yes, and I'm very, very glad that you talked about, introduced the concept that it's time for a revolution, Cheryl, because <laughs> as we know, revolutions start in the cafe. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank you all for joining us today on Jeff's Cafe. Uh, let's have some more revolutionary talk in the near future. Thanks very much, Cheryl. You're welcome. Thank you, Elise. Thanks, Jeff. And thanks very much, Zara. Thanks, Jeff. Cheers. Bye-bye, everybody. And now it's time for Nostalgia Town, where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. Hello to you all, and it's terrific today on Nostalgia Town. We're visiting a very special person. She's the 2022 Senior Australian of the Year, Val Dempsey. And as the 2022 Senior Australian of the Year, she's going to be very, very busy, if not already. She's known for her tireless commitment to promote and deliver emergency first aid training to help precious saving of lives. Known affectionately as Auntie Val, the 71-year-old has dedicated her adult life volunteering with St John to promote a healthy and safe community. In 2020, Val coordinated the deployment of volunteer teams to first aid posts to assist in the bushfire emergency response. In the 1990s, in response to an epidemic of drug overdoses and deaths, Val created Project Survival, taking first aid education and messages into the places drug users frequented. The initiative was, was so successful, it was adopted nationally by the Community Care Program. A very good day to you, Val. I hope you can hear us loud and clear. Good morning. How are you, Patricia? Good morning. We're interested. Whereabouts did you grow up? Oh, <laughs> I'm Canberra born and bred. I have to tell you, I was born in the Canberra Community Hospital in 1950 and my parents uh, moved across to the brand new suburb of Narrabunda, which is now, of course, nearly 70 years old. Gosh, now those formative years there, what were your cultural experiences, your favourite songs, movies, films there? What did you do in your spare time? Well, 
I have to tell you that spare time was a luxury. I'm one of five kids. Dad came back from the war. Mum and Dad married directly after the war and then set about having a brood of kids and I'm the second of five. And so when Dad came back from the war, he wasn't particularly well. We know now that those times during the war elicited very serious health issues for our returning soldiers. But back then, it wasn't known by any name. Men didn't speak of their ventures, and everything was very quietly passed over. But Dag wasn't particularly well all the time, so there wasn't a lot of spare time. And being the elder girl in a family of five, I can tell you life was pretty busy with digging up potatoes, getting the veggies ready for dinner while mum was busy breastfeeding the next one along. Well, Canberra in those days, I I grew up in Wagga Wagga and I can remember we would uh, occasionally take trips to Canberra in the, you know, early 1960s. And it was a a big country town in those days, really. You know, there were were kangaroos on Northbourne Avenue, that kind of thing. (laughs) You must have seen some enormous changes. Oh, enormous changes. One of the biggest thrills that I've had in my life is when that I was turning 21, Uncle Keith asked me to be and initiate a program in Canberra called Hire a Guide. And I learned so much more about my wonderful country town growing into a fabulous national capital. Mm-hmm. And so here we are with the Malonglo River, we're wagging school, Dag was on the buses. <laughs> and I can tell you when we used to steal those big cable um, looks like big cotton reels and float them down the Malonglo <laughs> River when we wagged school. Dag would know about it before we got home because all the bus drivers would talk to each other and they say, hey, Frank, saw your kids down the river today. But, you know, we've grown into such a magnificent city and I've seen the river change into a lake and I've seen the growth and the development and the people coming to Canberra. In 1957, they set up the National Capital Development Commission and brought many, many people to our national capital. But the biggest, the biggest development and the happiest times were during my childhood where I grew up because we absolutely invented multiculturalism. I can tell you, with all the people from every walk of life, every country that came into Australia after the war ended up in my fabulous suburb. And so we had beautiful, wonderful cross-nation people. If you went shopping down the local shops on a Saturday morning, you would see ladies from India dressed in their national garb. You'd see Greek gentlemen wearing their hats. And it was just a wonderful time. And we've taken all that into this magnificent city as it is now. It'll never be more than a country town to me, but I also appreciate the benefits of living and being in an amazing capital city. And we are your capital city. We are there for you. And and Val, you don't feel that having uh, so many politicians around has contaminated it? (laughs) Do you know, everybody that comes to Canberra has something to offer. 
everybody. Sometimes you might like to put them in the washing machine, (laughs) wash them out, stick them in the dryer, hang them out to dry on the clothesline. But, you know, we all come to the table with something so positive to add. And those that actually don't add to the mix, they don't last long. No, they don't, do they? And you're talking about beautiful Canberra, I can remember, as I would have been one of thousands of Sydney students at the time who uh, had their first trip on a plane as a school kid, public school, and we were flown to Canberra for the day. I think the (gasps) night we stayed overnight and saw so much. And now I talk to kids that I teach and they seem so much more again, you know, but they go on a bus. They weren't lucky enough to go. And they come back with diaries full of the fabulous places they visited. And it's really lovely that their minds and hearts haven't been quite as tainted as perhaps adults are when we go, oh, Canberra and all those politicians. <laughs> but you're painting a beautiful picture of um, the Canberra that I remember too. Yeah, thank oh, you. Oh, absolutely. I think that um, people who were born, us baby boomers, you know, we're lucky kids. We really are. You We've bet. had such, you bet. We've had such an amazing um childhood were look I can tell you we weren't rich with lots of things I remember my mum knitting me um a beautiful colorful jumper out of scraps of wool she came through the depression nothing was wasted she's Cornish you never throw anything out (laughs) and uh and I remember thinking it was the prettiest thing I'd ever seen and I wore it to school However, children can be so unkind at times. And it reminds me desperately of that wonderful song from Dolly Parton, My Coat of Many Colours. And it takes me back to that time. But, oh, gosh, it was such a pretty jumper. Mm. And I think kids do miss out on having that wonderful camaraderie, the community spirit, the walking to school, cracking ice on the grass while you're going there, (laughs) chucking plums at kids in the summer, walking across to the baths. We weren't allowed to have shoes or a towel because invariably we would leave them behind at the baths. But we would have hot tar stuck to our feet in the hot summer months and we thought we were so lucky. Val, your life has been characterised and distinguished by its community service. You're serving your own community, which you clearly love so much. Where did that come from? I am glad you asked about that. When I was a very young girl, I remember wanting desperately to be a nurse, dressing up teddies, wearing the Red Cross veil, all of those things. But my biggest inspiration came from a wonderful woman who used to dress up on weekends in a white uniform. She'd put on her gloves, straightened this particular hat, and then I'm invited as a young girl to hop in the car with her. You know the cars where the blinkers flash out of the side of the car where they come out, <laughs> that old one? Yeah. And, and we'd motor our way out to the cotter. Now, she was a nurse with St John Ambulance and we used to go out to the Cotter River in a log cabin and I would drum up all of my patients and if you looked as though you needed help, you came under my radar. And I have to tell you, that inspirational woman that gave up her weekends and I said to her, 
why do you do this, Mrs. Box? And she said, I just like helping people. And it really hasn't changed from that moment. We, I know what it feels like to have a helping hand. I know what it feels like to have the community offer you kindness when you really need it. And I know what it feels like to accept a food package because when Dag was sick, there was so very little to go around. And you know, if what goes around comes around. And I've had 50 years of going around. <laughs> We're so happy that you are you, Val, and that there are people like you in our world. And it's no wonder that you are the 2022 Senior Australian of the Year. But there must be some times when you uh, make connections with uh, your social world. Do you still value those social connections? Oh, absolutely. Um and you might not be surprised that my largest social connection is actually through St John Ambulance. Do you know, you hang up your apron when you're looking, this is a great analogy, you're looking after your family and you're wearing an apron. And I'm not being sexist or feminist or any of that, but you hang up your family apron and you turn around and you put on a uniform and you go out and that's your other apron. And the world that offers to you in volunteering and being out there, I could never have developed a large social sect without that opportunity. As kids, we didn't really get outside the family at all. It was always um, cup of tea and afternoon tea over at auntie's on a Sunday afternoon after church. And so it was very limited out we really were with inside the church group, nothing too flash about that. I'm a junior Anglican from way back. And to have that social sect, but you know what? You keep the kids that you grew up with and it doesn't matter where you come from because you take that with you where you go and it sets you up for life. And that's what I think having that social sect around you is all about. My nursing group, I remain friends with them after 45 years. 45 years. They're my best friends too. That's fantastic. Val, it sounds like you, you kept yourself very busy. Did you ever have time for fun? Ah, if you don't have fun every day, go home. <laughs> this today is fun. Everything I do, you bring an element of fun into it. And you know the best way to have fun? You just have to have a smile in your heart because mm. it doesn't matter what you tackle. If you suddenly have that smile in your heart, everything becomes a joy. Oh, well, oh, <laughs> I feel so much better having spoken with you, Val, don't you, Lex? Yeah, oh. absolutely. Val, do you, do you remember, did you go to the, the movies? Did you go to the Saturday afternoon matinees? Did you, <sighs> what, did you listen to the radio? Did you watch TV? What did you do? Oh, absolutely. We never got a TV until just after when President Kennedy was shot dead. Oh. And I remember that so clearly and so vividly because I saw it on the TV up at the, up at the Griffith shops. There, they had a TV there. We used to go up there. Mum would make us all apple pies and we'd go and sit outside the shop <laughs> and ask them to turn up the noise so we could all sit there with the, with all of us kids and watch the TV. It was such fun. But, before that, there was an element of absolutely just enjoying the family. And the family was everything. You did have your good friends, but it was, it was fun to listen to the radio. Oh my gosh. 
Blue Hills or Green Hills? I can't. Blue Dr. Hills. Paul. Blue Hills by oh, Gwen Meredith. Dr. Paul, he used to get my heart racing. I couldn't go to school until <laughs> I'd finished listening to him. What about Portia Face's <laughs> Life? Did you want to listen to that? <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> Por- Portia Face's Life. Oh, my gosh, all those memories. Mm. But I do remember mum would save her pennies and she would give us each enough. My brother and I were allowed to go to the pitches on a Saturday Arvo and we had to walk over there. It was quite a hike, not near, but not too far. And then we could go to the pitches in the afternoon and in half time it was the shadow and then the phantom and Dick Tracy came along and you had to go back next week because you didn't know if he was going to live or die and it mattered so much. And then we'd spend our bus money on ice cream and have to walk home. But boy, we got a whack because we got home late because we didn't come home on the bus on time. (laughs) You've created some beautiful word pictures for us all to enjoy. Oh, Val, you're absolutely wonderful. Such a treat to make us feel better for the rest of the day, for the rest of the year, we hope, while you enjoy and we enjoy you being the 2022 Senior Australian of the Year. Thank you so much from me and from... Lex, yes, (laughs) thanks, Val. It's been a a real joy. You've brought such uh, sunshine and energy to the program. Oh, um, do you know what? What a marvellous opportunity to meet two very special people. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thanks, Val. All the very best. Bye-bye for now. Thanks, Val. Okay, bye for now. Bye. And now it's time for Money Extra, where an expert on a particular finance topic gives us a brief life lesson on money. Hi, I'm Mark Bynum, Money and Retirement Coach from The Money Sandwich. Talking to you today about retirement is not just about the money on Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. Many people look towards retirement from a purely financial perspective. It's understandable as getting your finances right is a very important part. However, it is only one part. You also need to be prepared for retirement emotionally and physically, including answering the biggest question, what will you do once retired? So what will be your next big challenge? You are entering a new phase of your life, a great phase, but for it to be rewarding, it must provide you with a challenge. The last thing you want is to become bored. Do you prefer a traditional type retirement, spending time on recreational activities close to home? Or do you want to make a significant shift in your lifestyle, such as downsizing the house, buying a caravan and travelling indefinitely? Or would you continue to work more or less as you are now, because you enjoy your work, maybe just slow down a bit? Financially, our aim should be to have enough funds that you work because you want to, not because you have to. Your relationship is another important consideration. Many couples have not spent a lot of time with each other in the last 20 years or so before retirement. Work and family can do that to you. Have you had a chance to talk to your partner or loved ones about this? I also ask retirees what are they doing to maintain their health and well-being as we want to achieve the best quality of life for the next 30-odd years. So worth putting the effort into as your health is as important as thinking about your finances. Finally, when it does come to your finances, what are you doing to ensure the money lasts? How is it working hard for you? How have you invested it? I heard a well-known economist say that the greatest risk is not where your money is invested, but that we will outlive our money. As we're all living longer, which is a great thing, as long as we can afford it. 
so worth investing some time and effort into this area as well. Thanks for listening and bye for now. And now it's time for Stepping Out, where we speak with older people from around Australia, showcasing their communities and community radio stations and telling us why you might want to visit sometime. Jenny Armstrong is a retired registered nurse, mother and grandmother who grew up and lived in St George and Sutherland Shires in Sydney. Jenny has lived in the Shoalhaven on the uh, south coast since 1986. Very involved with her grandchildren, Jenny and her husband John travel a few months each year in their caravan. Jenny first became involved in community radio 17 years ago at 92.7 Bay and Basin FM and 2 Triple U Shoalhaven. She now researches, produces, writes and presents two shows a week. Passionate promoter of Australian music. Jenny, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for the opportunity for the chat. Yeah. And listen, how did you get involved in uh, community radio? Oh, look, that was uh, an accident. As things happen, I was introduced to it from a friend who was um, being interviewed at the time but couldn't work the technology. So I came along just to help out and it became an amazing passion for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jenny, this is almost a silly question because I know how beautiful it is where you live. <laughs> At the time, what was the, what is the appeal for you? The appeal for me still is, is probably the big thing is, apart from the beauty and the natural wonders that are here, and that goes through all the ages, but the memories I've created now from being here and the opportunities that I have, it is just amazing. My children that have gone through here that are now bringing up their own children here, and that to me is a testament in itself that the place has just got absolutely everything for the family right through to us retired. It must be heaven for older people to retire there or semi-retire as well as for active young people. Absolutely, Patricia. You're so right there. What we experienced as a young family, has improved even upon upon all of that. And now as a retired um, person, we sit back and, and we watch our children experience the same things. The things that are here from what a young family needs, from the natural wonders to the education, the shopping, the advantages, <coughs> pardon me, the sport and all of the opportunities. You often hear people say, what possibly can you do in the country? You know, there's nothing down there. And it's such a misconception. Mm-hmm. And I have proved that in um, it, by living here. Uh, Jenny, recently we've had, uh, you know, a lot of um, floods and natural calamities happening. How are you down there on the Shoalhaven? Are you well braced for, um, for emergency experiences? You know, being a community um, in the country... Everything is based on the community. I know that happens a lot in the city, in the city. But for an example, um, the community here, when we first moved down here, that was how you met people because of the fundraising and the community spirit. That was your social activities because everything you have in the community, you need to fundraise for. So my point there is that it's a very community based place. So whenever we have a natural disaster, and it is just, I say, 20 times old what you see in the city. We are so braced for it because that's what our the country, I think, is built on, uh, the country as opposed to the country and city. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot more. As we're now changing down here from a country base to we're getting closer and closer and closer to Sydney, 
I can see a change in that where there's a lot more diverse people coming in and you don't know everybody like you used to. But won't that end up being a positive thing? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It is a positive thing, you know, and and they all seem to embrace this, you know, community atmosphere that we have, but we're very well suited for it. We have, you know, all the technology um, even the community radio. Now, there's a big thing for me, you know, the uh, the broadcasting we do and what we, the information we give out. And people do tend to tune into the community radio for their information because we know what's here. We're Johnny on the spot. Johnny, it's, it's my natural inclination to go against anything that Patricia says. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the negatives about it? It seems to me that, uh, that the way you describe it, you're neither one thing nor the other. You're not the bush. Yeah. You don't have that and you're not the city. We are at the moment. You're absolutely right. And because so many people from the Sydney now work out that, hey, you can work from home now, and we're only an hour and a half from Sydney now with the roads being built in. And so I'm looking to see what that change will bring, whether there will be be negatives. I tend to rely that human nature looks for the positives and moves forward with it. Are you from the city, are you? Based in the city, yes, in the evil big city. Yeah. In my circle of friends now, I don't see that, and I don't see that so much with the grandchildren. I think their grandchildren are a lot more tolerant than what we were. I think it will be positive. Yeah, good. So we know that the Shoalhaven's fabulous and you love living there and it's a very giving, caring place and you're happy with your wonderful community radio, which is gold, as we know, to to locals who live in smaller areas. I want to know why you bother going away in a caravan for a few months every year, (laughs) if it's so good. You know, all that does is proves to us how how good it is here. We we will turn up somewhere and we say, oh, yeah, that's nice, but we've seen it. We've seen that. We've got that. We've got the rivers. We've got Jervis Bay. We've got the beautiful escarpments. We've got um, the mountains nearby. You know, we've got water sport, but it doesn't hurt to go and support other communities. Oh, good on you. That's the spirit. Well, we might have to invite you up to Sydney and support us too one day. Uh, We're all, we've all been all over the place this year and last year and the year before, like you have too, but uh, I think Sydney people are still struggling to get their act together, but uh, we're getting there. I'm sure you it's will. It's been a torrid sure time. Yeah, and I think that's been a benefit. A lot of regional towns have, if you can say, have benefited out of it. Is that right? In what way? Well, I think the people that are, um, like I say, they now realise that they can work from home. Mm. And I guess economically you can sell in Sydney, come Mm. down here Mm. and support yourself with Mm. two properties and still Mm. work and sit Mm. back and enjoy life a little better. I think a lot of people have come to that realisation. Not just here, I'd say a lot of regional areas, uh, there's a big influx. Sounds like you're pretty blessed down there. Good on you, Jenny. Jenny, are there good, are there strong community networks? Uh, I I believe there are, but I just want confirmed. For older people, is, is are there good yeah. uh, services there, good infrastructure for older people? We're just having um, been granted a $400 million upgrade to the hospital, okay? We've got a brand new cancer centre. So medically, and this, these have got linear accelerators, you don't have to leave the area. You don't have to go to Wollongong anymore for any treatment. It's here. Mm-hmm. And so medically, we're doing exceptionally well. We have the visiting doctors that come down. Okay, that's on that side of it. The shopping side of it, okay? Apart from your normal, a 
essential shops. We have the historical places in Berry in Milton and your unique little shops. You know, you, we're now come of age with food and winery and the um the breweries that are popping up you know your specialized brewery so there's that that all those sort of things entertainment we now have a 900 seat entertainment center and that's where a lot of this generation who are happy now to be entertained because i have to say when we were the 14 year olds we we were not all allowed to go out and visit these artists that we can now go and see at our leisure in a beautiful theater that's 10 minutes away ah whereabouts is that theater whereabouts that's actually right in nara ah beautiful it's it's a 900 seat and we have a 200 seat as well with it it's been there about 10 years now so the entertainment has upped its ante the social the eating out the places the shopping the historical that has all upped its ante but we've still got the natural beauty and i think a lot of our generation are a lot fitter and are keen to stay fit so we've got all of those activities your beach for those that still like the surf, we've got the surf. We have Jervis Bay, an amazing place. We have your bushwalking. We've got your Aboriginal historical bushwalks. And so I think you can be as busy as you want or you can have the peace and tranquility. Do you know, I think you should be working for the New South Wales Tourist Bureau. You've done <laughs> such an excellent job. I'm very job. passionate about our area, I have to I can to see say. Lex packing his bags now. <laughs> Jenny, just before we go, so just describe what is what is the catchment area? Where is what, what is the Shoalhaven? Where does your radio station reach? And okay. also, what kind of station is it? Is it a generalist station? Is it a bit of everything? Or what are the popular programs? The ones you get the most requests for? Okay, apart from, apart from Baby Boomer's Guide, of course. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're absolutely right there. I would say our most popular shows would be the the Baby Boomer. Uh, material but having said that the young ones have caught on to that music now we web stream so we go everywhere my son in england listens to me okay so we do go everywhere the radio area not a lot of people actually listen to the radio as in turn on the radio these days they do it like we are now so you can pick it up anywhere we go from i would say albion park all the way down to milton Aladulla. We do do quite a fair area on the radio. That's a huge area. It's a huge area, mm. yeah. And we have the two community radio stations here. But the main one, my 92.7, where my passion is, um, is it, it does cover. And like I say, we web stream. The shows, community radio, the beauty of it is that you can choose the sort of music you want. And we do do a broad thing from a Spanish show to children mm. doing um, shows to school children doing shows, to any genre of music. If you name one, I would say we do it. And I know that you're a bit of a fan of, um, and so am I, of the late, great Ray Brown. Absolutely. Yeah. I was his fan club president for a while. Oh, well. <laughs> but, you know, I was saying before to some uh, producer that um, – he was a fine performer, a fine singer, and a fine human being. He really was an old-fashioned gentleman. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And we lost him far too early. But it did, uh, the um, the benefit for me was, um, you know, he's the bass player, John, and I were absolutely amazing friends. And he was the one that was the encouragement that brought out this other side of me. I'm a nurse. 
for goodness sake, you know, I don't do that. <laughs> He'd be very proud of you. Uh, look, I can, he was. He, he was, you know, it, and he was just full of encouragement and a great loss to the music industry, but he put so much into it and I plan to carry it on for him. Jenny, it's been lovely being with you and um, I think you've just about sold the Shoalhaven to all of us and actually I know the area quite well and I'm in love with it anyway. Yeah. But um, thank you very, very much for being our guest today. Jenny, thanks thanks again and, um, and also... Thanks for taking the program. I'm really here. We're really happy that you take Baby Boomer's Guide on your station. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we will pop down and see you one of these days. It's just some fabulous music. Can I just read our, our, um, the vision, our statement here from the Entertainment Center just to finish sure. up? And uh, as per the vision statement here of the Shellhaven Tourist Center, and this is true, tourism is an important economic driver for down here. So the Shellhaven plans to provide this top-class experience to encourage the older Australian to do more, stay longer and come back. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Take care. Thank you. You too. Best wishes, Jenny. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ah, that was a good show, wasn't it, Lex? Fabulous. What's on next week? We're talking about relationships for seniors with uh, Sue Malta. We've got mm. a stunning guest for uh, Nostalgia Town. And you know what? It's our 50th episode too, so we couldn't get more special than Ita Buttrose. And we'll be visiting, we'll be stepping out in Geraldton, Western Australia with Bernie Gorringe. That'll be good fun too. Baby Boomer's Guide to Life is produced on the Gadigal and Wongal lands of the Eora Nation in association with the Older Women's Network. Baby Boomer's Guide is funded by the Extra Foundation, which works to ensure that more Australians are confident making money decisions today and into the future. You can find out more by going to extra.org.au. That's E-C-S-T-R-A dot org.au. And don't forget, if you've missed any episodes, catch up on your favourite podcast app and online at babyboomersguide.com.au. Plus, you can join the conversation and have your say on our Baby Boomers Guide to Life Facebook page. Your Baby Boomers Guide to Life hosts are Senior Influencers of the Year, Patricia Little Paddy Amphlett and me, Big Lex Marinos. Get, Get connected, connected and stay, stay connected. connected.